We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. I'm Kimberly McKenzie. And I'm Paul Nazareth. Welcome to The Intersection. The idea for The Intersection was sparked by the polarizing dialogue around the need to choose between donor-centered fundraising and community-centered fundraising. I believe we can do both. I believe we can keep the baby and throw out the bathwater. I believe that the two can intersect to create a stronger sector. The divisive, polarizing nature of this debate has been hurtful and confusing for thousands of people working for social good. We've been waiting to have this conversation for a very long time, and we're so grateful that George Zeno and Jay Frost agreed to join us. George Zeno is a capacity builder, knowledge seeker, community weaver, and currently serving as the Associate Vice President for Advancement at the Pacific Lutheran University. Known to his friends as Zeno, he is passionate about diversifying the field of philanthropy and community development while bringing the fields closer to high-impact results in order to create sustainable, community-driven solutions for the world. He is kind, generous, and incredibly patient. Jay Frost brings together people, ideas, and resources to fuel positive change. He is recognized as one of America's top 10 fundraising experts and has worked with hundreds of organizations to identify and pursue billions of fundraising opportunities around the world. He is a wise, curious, and gentle man, even known to some as the Mr. Rogers of fundraising, which may be exactly what we need for this unifying conversation. We hope this episode inspires you to continue the conversation and work with us for a new and better way forward. Hey. Hey, Kimberly. So, you know, I have been wanting to have this conversation for such a long time. I know. And I think Kimberly found, gets fired up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, I think we found two really amazing people to jump into this dialogue with us. So I would like to invite Jay Frost and George Zeno to join us. Gentlemen, are you there? Jay's there. Hello. Hi, George. All right. Today, we are going to talk about community-centered fundraising and donor-centered fundraising. And um, you may not know this, but the intersection was sparked by the debate that we've been having in our community, because I believe that we can have paradoxes that exist and are right at the same time. And certainly this conversation around community-centered versus donor-centered is one where I really think there is an intersection, that there's a lot of polarization in our community and, um, and I would love to chat with you all today in the hopes that we can clarify maybe some of the misunderstandings or misperceptions and dig into what that intersection looks like for the sector and how we can all really move forward and maybe redefine social structures and best practice. 
Uh, does that sound okay? <laughs> All right. So because, you know, Paul might get a little fired up, I want to um, just read out a couple of ground rules and then let's just dive right in. All right. We're going to be okay with piano lessons in the background here at my house because I made a mistake scheduling this call. <laughs> and we're going to be okay with Jay's sketchy internet because he's at the farmhouse this week. And um, Paul's kids may or may not make an appearance and that's going to be just fine too. And George, whatever happens with you is fine. <laughs> okay. I don't know what's happening in Sounds your background, good. but you know, here we are. Um, we will also be candid, brave, and bold as we dig into the conversation. We're going to challenge respectfully because we know that from friction comes progress and we will inquire for understanding and be patient with each other. Um, we acknowledge we're learning as we go and we're all a work in progress. We're gonna do the best we can and we might mess it up. I guarantee you, I will mess it up. Um, but we're going to forgive ourselves and each other. And and does that sound like an okay framework for you all to work within? Sounds great. All right. So um, we talked about the paradox between the two. And I think if we can find the right approach uh, with good intent, we can serve our communities better. And this is a conversation that has become very polarizing. So I think it might just start be good to open it up and hear from each of you around what, how do you define donor-centered fundraising and how do you define community-centered fundraising? For listeners who maybe don't have the time, have, you know, to, to dig in. Sounds great. I'll, I can start, I can start, sure. Jay. Yeah, go you, ahead, George. If, that sounds great. Um, so my name is, first let me say my name is George. Zeno and I use he, him pronouns. Um, and for those who are listening only, I am African-American. I'm wearing a white shirt with blue floral print all over it, wearing headphones, um, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, um, I, I say that donor-centered fundraising is about isolated power and community-centered fundraising is about shared collective power and that power is oriented to impact. Um, and so when we center a donor um, and the donor's wishes and desires uh, for impact, then we're isolating um, the, the scope of the view and the benefit and, and who gets to direct what that agenda is and where those resources go. Um, and the uh, uh, community-centered fundraising is really about the collective. It's about bringing um, stakeholders together uh, around um, complex social problem and understanding how we can all share and responsibility of understanding what is the agenda that needs to be solved, who's going to benefit from it, and those who benefit from it the most, how can they be part of the design factor um, and, the, and the access to those resources to um, implement an impact. Um, that's different than the donor-centered uh, fundraising model, which typically isolates the design factor to one organization um, and perhaps even to the donor um, uh, themselves. And so those who are impacted uh, only or only on the receiving end. Um, they're not in the, the exchange of ideals, the ideation of, of, um, of what needs to, to happen in, in an approach. 
I need to process that. And I've already spoken quite a bit. So I want to create space for uh, Paul or Jay, who would like to jump in to your ideas around what community centered and donor centered fundraising are. Jay, did I see you? Before I jump in. Well, I'm good to go. You jump in, Jay. Well, first of all, I feel like we could almost end the program here because yeah, George has defined this <laughs> so well. Um, in fact, I would argue much better than, uh, and this is Jay Frost speaking. We're going to do, uh, I'm going to record your introduction. So, okay. okay. Um, I, so I, uh, one of the things that really struck me about what you described, George, was um, drawing those, not just the, the differences, but their difference in impact for the people involved. Um, the, uh, both uh, all people that are organizations I would like to think serve, um, but also all the people involved with that work at every level in every way. Um, and I think there's been um, over time as people try to advance one philosophy, if you wish to call it that over another, they have not only not articulated as well as you just did, but they've also often done that in a way that um, that fuels an argument that may not, in fact, be real. Uh, that I, I went back before we started today, and I just I was writing down because that's the best way for me to internalize something, what they say on the mission statement of the CCF website. And then I went over uh, to Penelope Burke's um, second edition of her book, where she crystallized that phrase. I don't think she invented it necessarily, but she crystallized it and wrote about it. She and trademarked what, it, though. I'm sorry? She did trademark it. She did trademark it. It's sort of like Jerry Panis, who I used to work with, um, who it, uh, said he had the trademark for moves management. Oh, wow. uh, so, you know, I, I, I never know the providence of these things. But I do. But these people, I think all of them, all these people behind these two movements, if you wish to call them that, are pretty, as far as I can tell, extremely sincere in their effort to make sure that um, either a the entire community is heard, many of many members of which have never been adequately heard, or in the if you wish to call it that the other camp of donor-centered uh, philanthropy, where we finally listen to donors. And what's interesting is I went through that uh, little process earlier today, is that when Penelope Book was even Burke was talking about that, she said that it was a response to traditional fundraising. And so the thing we think of as traditional fundraising isn't traditional fundraising at all. I think traditional fundraising is our biggest enemy here. Mm -hmm. And that's where we treat everybody poorly. Mm -hmm. um, we treat everyone like an ATM machine, like free labor, and we don't want to listen to them no matter who they are, whether they're on our boards or whether they're coming to an event or whether they're sending in $5 or $500,000. Um, I love our organizations, but we treat them like fiefdoms. And if either of these approaches, especially welded together in harmony, can cause us to be a little more humble and to bring some, uh, an opportunity for people to come in and for us to actually hear them, mm -hmm. then I think we win. Um, but if we draw these camps apart like warlords in a battle for who controls the definition of these terms, I think we're in trouble. So I was really... Uh, heartened to hear the way you describe these, George, because I think it frames them in a way that's very both uh, informed and dispassionate. Okay, well, we're done. Great. Thanks for being here. 
<laughs> Don't you go anywhere. Go ahead, Paul. You, I'm talking over you. Yeah. Go ahead. Part of it is, is, is for me, you know, I, as you said, there's been the friction and I've watched with pain as people that I really respect argue with each other. And again, I think that a lot, in a lot of cases, they're arguing with who they think the other is and who the other is representing. Right. And for me, one of the biggest uh, tensions in this argument has been small grassroots charity in the nonprofit community and the advancement community and the major gift community. Because, you know, I've worked in both. I've worked in advancement at universities. I've worked with a lot of small charities as well. The culture is massively different. The relationship with charities, power, money is so different. So, you know, in some ways, and I'm a Star Wars guy. So I think in some of these people are arguing to say, you're the, you're the, the empire and we're the rebel alliance. We're the community kind of concept here. And you're kowtowing to the emperor uh, of the donor and the money. And that's been my challenge is they're not, they're not, also trying to understand each other. Because in an advancement model, there is the reality of designated giving, of campaigns uh, now in the billion dollar level of the traditional moves management. And in the, in the grassroots where it has been a lot of, for years and years, the transactional fundraising. That's my other name for what I think as well, Jay, you're calling the traditional, mm -hmm. that a lot of organizations are grounded in. Again, as a, as a gift planner, a plan giving guy, I often really have attention with the concept of special events and the transactional, the mass faceless, you know, and again, that horrible derivative, if everybody gave a dollar, we'd, the campaign would be done. And there's a ton of people who are saying, you know, that's not even the point of this whole deal. We're trying to bring people in, not just with money, but with mindset, with their social capital, not just with their in individual. So that's for me, this weird tension where people are playing battleship and shooting at each other and they're in two different oceans. It's like there's two different conversations happening. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're here today. I, I love what George said about power. Um, and, and it makes me think about when I was working with major gifts the phrase I'm, I'm you know what I'm I'm probably going to get in trouble with for a whole bunch of things that I say today but but the the phrase of um the tail wagging the dog when a donor would come in and be too restrictive or want to develop a new program and want to tailor I'll give you this money if you do x y and z that I think is the power dynamic that you're referring to George and the idea that community solutions will be found and created within the community and then we find donors who can get excited about that that's so easy for me to buy into because that just makes sense and when i read and study penelope burke and she says phone a donor at the end of every day and say thank you that's very tactical there's a lot of very tactical great service things about her work that donors will give more if you say thank you it's so basic yet yeah, so do good humans good humans say thank you when someone does something nice for them right that's that's how i was taught to think of donor-centered fundraising and jay just elevated it for me by taking it right back to traditional fundraising before ken burnett wrote his book on relationship fundraising and um and how we would just have this churn of just constantly seeking money without reporting impact or demonstrating that we were doing good work with it. And um, 
And that's where I think the conversation has kind of gotten confused. We're mixing up tactics with, I want to say morality or the right thing to do or how we need to now shift given, given what's happening in the world. And there's a lot of confusion out there. I have heard fundraisers say, am I not supposed to be, am I a bad person if I send out a thank you letter? So my well, I can see both of you on that one. Well, uh, you know, is, is that is that no longer best practice? Am I not supposed to be doing that anymore? Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we might be able to provide clarity around around what is best practice and how can we layer the um, philosophies, the, the good parts, the good philosophies of community centered fundraising. I think there's a place where it comes together to redefine best practice. Go ahead, Paul. You know, Jay, with your perspective and the amount of organizations you work with on the strategic level, how can organizations, because they're saying, you're asking us to restart our methodology. That scares a lot of organizations to death. But as you said, it can be done within the fundraising model. Um, So I'd love to hear from that strategy piece. And George, I'd love to hear how you reconcile this being in advancement. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, again, that advancement model is built on power and, yeah. and you know, age old structures. Again, I had I couldn't create uh, chairs or awards without all the bursary committees. I myself have actually worked in a bank in a donor advice fund. So, you know, that's the furthest end of the spectrum of, of the money power. You live in the middle where there's governance, academia, all of that involved. And then, Jay, you've got this incredible perspective on what people are doing and maybe how seeing how some people are doing it well. Wow, Paul, you just blew my mind because I always think you come in cold with a thousand other things and then you always come in prepared. I have no hobbies and I don't want to smoke. Holy smokes. So yeah, that's part, this is my, you know, this is the whole, and again, because people (laughs) I care about and respect are fighting and and arguing with each other in a in what I consider also to be a bit of a disrespectful way. Yeah. This is vital stuff that the two of you bring to the table. So either of you jump in. I can't wait yeah, to we're gonna sit back and listen to that now. George, do you wanna sure? Uh, uh, Paul, Paul, thank you very much for that question. And I think your lived experience um uh, with advancement is showing through with your question. Um I, I should give some a quick, some quick background in that I worked at the University of Washington in Seattle, the largest research university um, in the Northwest United States, actually larger than um, UBC, University of British Columbia as well. So if you think about Western Canada um, and the Northwest, it's, the, it's basically the, the largest research university. Um, uh, with a kind of a central model with a university foundation, um, uh, very, very much donor-centered philanthropy. And I was hired by the regents of the university to respond back to an anti-affirmative action measure of our state, which ended consideration of race um, um, in the admission process. And so um, when I was hired by the university, uh, my, my responsibility was essentially to do the external relations, alumni development, fundraising, Um, specifically targeting to our alumni of color. Um, And I learned very quickly that the, what you're all calling traditional uh, fundraising, I call heritage, 
fundraising, mm-hmm. um, that heritage fundraising, because traditional for me is grassroots, what we've right. always been doing in the church basements and, and in our communities, I call that more traditional. Um, but that, that the heritage model of fundraising, uh, which was really for generations led by the art of philanthropy, uh, what we learned in our, you know, how to wine and dine donors, mm-hmm. how to get them to buy into something, um, wasn't going to work in the community. Uh, they, <laughs> they straight up told me that um, that uh, uh, that I needed to be representative of the university when it doesn't count. That yeah. I need to be seen and felt to be to uh, in spaces where there was no light. Um, and so for me just to walk in and make assumptions that because of the University of Washington that people would join in and whatever areas of support that I that I was looking for support um, was uh, a narrative that wasn't welcomed. And um, I learned that very quickly in the black community. I also work, uh, learned that tremendously deeply in, um, in the native communities, indigenous communities that I worked in. And so I needed to formulate a different approach to fundraising that went against the the rest of the, the infrastructure of the university. We're talking about a 500 person department. Um, and I was by myself right. and building a new community centered way of philanthropy where, where donors could not come in and dictate where resources were gonna, gonna go. Um, a quick example of this was the university had been trying to build a longhouse um, for uh, our native students um, since the 1970s. And, um, and it wasn't happening because the tribes didn't buy into it. Um, the, they, there was a number of different issues that the university uh, unfortunately contributed to um, um, ho- horrible impact um, in those tribal communities that needed to be addressed. So I, need to learn, I needed to learn what restorative philanthropy was going to do. Uh, to drive us towards community philanthropy. So part of that restorative philanthropy was um, healing and understanding that um, our communities were, um, have been impacted by the systemic inequities formed through education, dictated through education, everything from forced boarding schools, as you all yep. are experiencing in Canada right now, mm-hmm. um, to, to fisheries and land management dictations that our university um, is dictating by, for, through state policies. Um, and then museum and artifacts that were being kept and captured um, at, the, at our university, uh, bringing the tribal elders together uh, to, for healing um, uh, led by our university regents and our president took three years of us going to tribal councils mm-hmm. in rural Washington, Eastern Washington, in coastal, small coastal villages um, on, the, on, on, our, on our Washington coast, uh, for, uh, years of relationship development, trust building that was needed in order for us to even move to community-centered philanthropy model. So I first want to say that because I think yeah. that's incredibly important to understand, especially yeah. when you're talking about big infrastructure philanthropy, as Paul was alluding to, um, that uh, all that work led to, I think even today, well over $200 million raised by the university 
for communities of color, for indigenous populations, for pe people with different life affinities and identities um, that were birthed from the seed of that. And so we opened up the country's first equity and justice center for philanthropy um, uh, to do this kind of work that, was, that really uh, is where we are today, where the need in the sector is. Mm -hmm. So I first want to offer that is um, a critical component of, of where the, the big infrastructure philanthropy, mm -hmm. um, uh, the challenge of shifting to that. Mm -hmm. um, and let me just quickly say about power, because we're seeing it quite a bit right now in America mm -hmm. when it comes to philanthropy, especially as, as um, Kimberly, as you were saying about um, d d d donors wagging the uh, the tail wagging the, the dog. The tail wagging the dog. Um, you know, we are seeing um, uh, philanthropy being held hostage around race issues. Um, the threat of donors uh, removing their endowments or withdrawing their pledges in campaigns. Um, we see this at the University of Texas and not at Austin and their school's alma mater, which it was which debuted at a minstrel show with students wearing blackface. Um, and, uh, and now the university coming having a reckoning where the alumni, their biggest donors, are out front saying that they're going to restrict their giving or withdraw their giving from the university if these things change, if the students don't stand and participate in the singing of the alma mater. Almost a forced patriotic um, action happening based mm -hmm. off of philanthropic power. Mm -hmm. Same thing is happening at the University of North Carolina, where, uh, where, they, where we're now discovering that a donor has blocked the tenure position of an African-American scholar who created the 1619 pro project of the New York Times that really gave a reflection of slavery, the history of slavery in our country and its mm -hmm. impact. So now we have donors who are so powerful that they are working with uh, regents to block um, tenured positions because they do not like what um, is happening at the university. And so now you're seeing philanthropy used as a weapon. And I think that that is, the, that, that is one of the biggest things we need to come to uh, have a reckoning around when you use donor-centered philanthropy. So I was going to ask how you advance restorative philanthropy in a one-year budget cycle, but you answered that for me. <laughs> so it's, is a big deal to hear it's, it's going to take time. It's going to take yes. time. Overnight, you've got to make the investments. Well, you have to believe in generational change. Yes. Um, but also the um, having a better understanding of what's happening in large education institutions will help the executive director from the local humane society and Northern Ontario get clarity around what am I, how am I supposed to build this fundraising program now? Because she's not dealing with those issues. And, and while I can see the importance of being very vocal and having a strong alliance to support um, those advocating for social change in those situations, we still have a whole sector of confused people out there. Absolutely. So this is a this is a Jay Frost superpower though too. Yeah, it, here's your uh, moment. Jay. Clarity to confusion. Well, it, it, it. Let me let me get my cape. I mean, <laughs> the, the, 
<laughs> again, I'm, I'm at a risk here of sounding too much in agreement. And I know that sometimes conflict can bring you a little heat and light. But um, the one thing that really strikes me as you were talking, George, is that what you describe in developing this environment for restorative philanthropy within the university, well, there are several things that occurred to me, but one of them was um, you've got this massive institution, like you described it, University of Washington, biggest research educational institution uh, in North America, at least, if not the world, um, it, it, with its uh, fingers and in history into many different things over time. And intentionally or not, some of that was very painful for certain communities. And so if you went out there as a, you know, freshly minted development officer, I don't know what your life was like before you took on that role. And, and your idea was just walk in the room and say, hey, I'm from UW. And, you know, so here I am, give me your money. Of course, that wouldn't work. Um, I, but one thing that really struck me as you were telling that story was what you described is what any good development program would need to do. It wouldn't necessarily have those same problems with history. Uh, in fact, you know, but there are other institutions like that. I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, uh, bones in some collections, you know, human bones uh, around the country and different museums and issues that have been at places like the Smithsonian. There's a whole history of this kind of stuff. But anyway, but, but the idea that you went into communities where there either was no relationship or a, a very uh, difficult history and you had to take two to three years to build that, it sounds like in a sense, even though those, those dynamics were somewhat different and the history was different, that's exactly what we have to do every time we have to build relationships with a community we've completely ignored before. Mm -hmm. So while it's entirely different, it's so similar, at least in my experience, to what all development programs are. And in fact, what the University of Washington, I think to its credit, has, has done well within the development office. I, I wasn't even aware of some of this some of this uh, uh, pretty awful history with, with the university before. But um, years ago, uh, I went out uh, to the university um, because I had a speaking engagement that they had me do out locally for development officers out there. Um, and then I went and visited with the university. And the reason I went was because they were trying to find different ways of talking to international communities. So um, there were already people setting up, this was in the early days of Facebook communities. And there were people who had set up uh, like a Husky, you know, uh, page in Hong Kong, for example, in different communities. Why were they doing that? Because the university hadn't figured out what to do with these people. Like many, even though a big place like that, they had entirely ignored all these communities that were the brand, but they'd never done anything for them. Um, I, 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 conversely, you can look at a place like um, University of Toronto that made a decision, a very specific decision. I think it was 93, maybe it was uh, 95, that they were going to build a program out for Hong Kong and they built a 10-year arc. It's much like what you described. So first of all, you got all these parents who never were treated right. I mean, it wasn't like the terrible history you've described at the University of Washington, but um, parents who were ignored, uh, students who, when they graduated, went back, were completely ignored, all this stuff. So they decided, well, we're going to build a whole program around them. And, and then they raised tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars because they just decided, you know what, it's about time we stop ignoring these people and built a program around them and their needs. Mm -hmm. So it was a donor-centric approach to a community that had always community been ignored. Yeah. So as you talk about this, that's what strikes me. And 
then the, I, I just have to say one more thing about There's this. There's no rush, guys. Yeah. There's no rush. Oh, well. Although I'll just mention that was my advancement shop, the University of Toronto. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and my alma mater. Uh, and you know what, again, part of this is the challenge, though, is the machine doesn't stop on the front end while you're trying to do this on the back end. Yeah. We're trying to plant trees on one side while you're deforesting on the other. Right. And Absolutely. Hong Kong is a perfect <laughs> example, partially because it's 93. They saw 97 company coming and said, you know, here's here's a very lucrative advancement opportunity. That's Let's right. Plant the seeds now. So that's the challenge. You know, it wasn't necessarily them being enlightened to seeing the, the piece to say we need to get out in out in front of it. So that yeah. was the other challenge, because what are they doing with indigenous popul populations specifically? You know, Canada's very large, diverse community there, you know, next to nothing. And, and in fact, as time yeah. went on with a lot of the Asian diaspora, it became an extractive relationship. Wow, mm -hmm. Paul, you're throwing U of T under the bus? No, <laughs> you, know, you know, they're my alma mater and I've got everything in my life because of them. You know, I'm a bequest donor too, but, you know. I was, fancy. Proud, I was proud of Jay for a Canadian reference. Yes. And that, that was that was John Delandria. That was that was uh, yeah. John Delandria's program. Yeah, and, and you're and you're right. I mean, there were two parts to it. One is treat people right. The other is there's money there. So there are two ways to view the same issue. And one is, hey, you know what? We've been ignoring these people for the other. The other one is, hey, get let's get the dough that's extraction. And 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 I have to admit that I've played into that in my own career for a long time because I was an advocate early on, like back to the '80s. For doing international philanthropy and um the first thing i ever wrote and spoke on was root for the golden temple it was all about japanese philanthropy so people were beating up japanese philanthropists in the united states and and literally smashing cars and steps to the capitol and in detroit and uh, so i was just kind of flipping it around because i found it interesting and fun to say well look there are all the there are simultaneously the japan foundation and others are giving these million dollar grants to universities including i think UW for major language programs. And it was followed by the university, you know, by uh, Korea Foundation and others. But so one way of looking at this is, you know what, stop ignoring these people that are a big part of the world then and gone to this world's second largest economy. Um, or the other is, well, there's a lot of money out there. So I was, I was trying to at least talk to both. And, and the reason I'm bringing this back to us right now is, I think when we think about these things, whether we're talking about strategy or tactics, both of which are important to discuss, because we we have to be thinking about this, I hope, in a more holistic, grounded, informed, and inclusive way. But we also have to do it in ways that actually raise some some money in the future. I would like to think that we can actually make those things agree if we look at this 10 years out rather than 10 years behind. Because <laughs> so 10, 10 years ago or so, one of the things I was doing as a way of just running around speaking was to say, you know what? All you have to look at is the demographic trends. Mm -hmm. More people are buying salsa in the U.S. than are buying mayonnaise. So ha ha ha! It's a joke, but it's not a joke. You're, all you all we had to do was look at where the population is growing. One way of looking at that is we've been ignoring these people. It's true. Another way of looking at this that's where the money's going to be. It's true. It, I wonder if we'd be talking about philanthropy in, this, in the way we do today, especially kind of the old white guy philanthropy of which I am a part, as you can see. Um, if we had just started looking at the future earlier, instead of always thinking about the boards and what they looked like 10 years ago. I'm, I really believe that we ought to find a way to talk to the communities that we serve and have those people serving on our boards because it's the right thing to do. But I also think 
it's the smart thing to do because the money is not going to be in the same hands tomorrow that it is today. And I don't even know how much help it's going to need to transfer there. I would like to think we play a role in making it more inclusive and equitable. But the reality is it's going to change whether we like it or not. And I, so we're on the right side of that change. Um, and if we, there's a way we can contribute to fundraising and nonprofits being a part of that, uh, that uh, evolutionary but very, very glacial process, then all the better. George? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with Jay there. I think that, um, uh, that the, the way we f formulate philanthropy, I think, has to change. Um, part of that is um, understanding how to define impact uh, beyond self. And I think that's the hardest part right now is when you have um, even you know, if you look at your humane society example, if you if you if you think that you're going to meet your mission by yourself, then you're you're fooling yourself. And so the goal, so the part of the community, the, the one of the beautiful principles of community-centric uh, uh, fundraising is recognize that you don't walk alone, um, that you don't have to carry the weight all by yourself. But when you isolate your impact just to what you're measuring, then you're carrying the full weight yourself. Um, so if you use your humane society as an example, mm -hmm. you might think about, you know, the, the goal is to perhaps um, have animals adopted in loving homes. Um, and that, that might be your, your impact that you're measuring. Mm -hmm. If you're measuring just to that, then you've isolated your impact. Mm -hmm. Now you think about what more could that impact look like? And that, that's going to require us to actually reformulate how we look at the impact. Mm -hmm. It's going to require us to take our bias lens off of our work and understanding through an ecosystem view um, or environmental view about what more can that happen. So what does that mean to have an animal in a house? What more that animal do for family cohesion, for me to learn social emotional learning mm -hmm. skills as a child when I have a dog? Or, or a pet, responsibilities. All those things are now critical components of life development. Yeah. Um, so how do you tie those things around? We talk about social determinants of health. When we think about health equity, you know, um, all those are measurable towards life expectancy. Having a pet increases your life expectancy. And those, so those are things we can think about tying together. Now we have a better understanding. Who can I partner with? Should yeah. I be partnering with my local hospital? Well, the partnership that I'd like to highlight is one from years back in the UK, where an animal um, protection agency partnered with a child protection agency. And the partnership was based on the fact that if you are harming an animal, you're very likely harming a child. And so they were um, cross training to watch for those things and to work together for the betterment of society as a whole. And, uh, and, you know, Jay, I'm a, I'm a big John Delandria fan because I, I started during the kind of end of his tenure. And it's such a fascinating, you know, enlightened leader. He, he used to give these general patent type talks about, about taking your summer vacation as a fundraiser. He would say, you know, burnt out people are not effective. So take your time, you know, and, 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 and be strong. And, and, you know, let's make time. He was incredible on bringing the advancement teams, uh, everybody, alumni and development together. When in, in silos, again, none of us is smart as all of us. And even now in his work, he's at a hospital foundation 
and they do some incredible partnerships with healthcare and groups like Alzheimer's Research. And actually one of their connections was something called the iPod Project, where they would fill an iPod uh, with the music of that person's life. Music and memory. Right, and, and again, just those kind of partnerships for everything, for a community benefit, but you bet that raises more too, right? And again, these, yeah. these kind of projects like the, the Hong Kong projects and others, generations later that are fully translatable are also what's gonna help us to take that to other communities too. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's one of the things I want to just divert a yeah, uh, minute uh, to get your thoughts on this too. You know, I always say the media always delivers me great gifts. I'm going to show you this if you can see it. I call it attack of the tech bros. <laughs> so today, front page of the biggest business section in Canada, a yeah. new way to donate. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. Right? And we're just like, okay, exactly. It's fundraisers. It's a guy who's created a peer-to-peer uh, a, a -peer direct fundraising platform for hospital foundation research to empower individual donors, kind of like Kiva.org, and go and zoom into a research project and fund just that research project. Again, this is what I think as fundraisers is doing us a disservice in this discussion about designated, undesignated. Wow. Community funding versus project funding. Yeah, yeah. This, your thoughts on that. This is so interesting. So so uh, do you mind if I quote from this community-centered thing versus the donors? Because that was one thing that stuck out for me. I hope I can find it. Um, that, uh, let me see. Well, no, I'm not going to find it. But I do remember that it talked about um, uh, within uh, within the website this this specific thing about not it, it, these this whole area of designated gifts. So if we're going further and further down that road about making it possible for donors to give directly to the things that they love, the positive of that is the uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the organization, but where people can make direct cash contributions to people who need them, who are in desperate poverty around the world, which sounds great in principle. But now, so where is the power really coming from? I'm not even going to get into that whole architecture of discussing this as savior complex, because then it takes us down another, you know, another rabbit hole. But rather just thinking about it as I've got money and I want to give whatever it is, $10, $100 US dollars, and I want to give it to the hands of somebody who needs it, or in this right. case, I want to give it to, you know, a treating music and memory for all time. I don't need to feel guilty. Yeah. I, 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 and, 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 but, but then is that, is that helping the organization? Is it helping the mission? Is it helping the community in need? I don't, I don't know the answer to those questions. I wonder if these tools are enabling our worst behaviors, not by design, but by accident. I think Paul would agree that Very they cool. are. You know, but the challenges too is, how do we embrace them? How do we use them? How do we talk about them? Right. And again, I think this is the whole power of the community-centric movement too, is it's out there doing the education. It shouldn't just be the, in the organization to be enlightened. It shouldn't be left up to our tactical leaders for us, thing, groups like AFP, who's talking about that traditional, we need skilled fundraising education. But I think the community-centric piece is a whole other one. Well, it's layering that social justice lens on top of our um, donor-centered practices and asking ourselves, if we look at this through so, a social justice lens, if we are empowering communities and lifting up and responding to their needs, as opposed to just patronizing them, mm -hmm. um, uh, how can we continue to build good fundraising practices? And, I, and, and how do we define what good is now? Where do we, how do we keep the baby 
how do we get rid of the bathwater and still keep the baby? And and I love the point that you made, Paul, about um, we're planting trees while we're deforesting. So we're not just, I wish we could wave, wave a magic wand and have every charity just pause and, and, and sit and figure out where have they caused harm and how can they restore that harm? I wish we could do that, but we, we live in a world where we're, we're not able to do that. Um, but I want to talk about old white guys. Okay, well, we're all like, okay, where are you going with this, Kimberly? Yeah, I, I don't know, but it always ends up somewhere good. Um, I mean, trust me, I, I'm an expert in this, so go ahead. <laughs> and George identified, I was going to ask you all how you identify, uh, and George did such a great job, I just lost the courage to do it because I've never done it on a podcast before, but I identify as a white, cisgendered, privileged female. Um, Jay, how do you identify for those who aren't watching the video? Okay. Yes. And for those who are not watching the video, I'm a 58, unfortunately going on 59 year old white guy. Um, not that old yet. What well, about you, Paul? I'm excited you asked because I haven't really said this anywhere publicly and I'm ready to do so and happy. Oh, so. Again. Okay. Is that I, I, I physically am a 45 year old South Asian male, but really my identification is, uh, is a person raised in a white suburb learned Italian until I was 10, learned German until I was 15, wow. expunged all culture from my life in order to survive and fit in. And in the fundraising world, my specialty was expunging my culture. You know, we, we had an incredible interaction once, and this really happened at a, at a conference at my own organization. I represent a national uh, association like AFP. And at one of our own conferences, Kimberly had just got back from a trip to India, the place of my ancestral origin. And oh my God. There, there was this uh, wonderful uh, uh, a group playing uh, Bhangra music with the, t with the tablas and everything. She said, Paul, let's dance. let's dance. And she grabbed my hand and I said, Kimberly, I will die before <laughs> any of my colleagues see me out there on that floor, connecting to this culture and this world that they've wanted to push me into, push me into that corner and, and make me and them, you know, unsafe. Like it's been this crazy exercise. And now that we're all trying to talking about this more openly, mm -hmm. we're trying to figure it out. I'm trying to unpack it, yeah. but make no mistake. A lot of us in the world of fundraising have, you know, I call it the violent code switching. Yeah. Where mm -hmm. so many of us of all backgrounds, because again, a lot of white communities of LGBT background, et cetera, do this mm -hmm. as well to fit into the fundraiser advancement model. Right. So that is something that a lot of us struggle with as well. That is an element of this. That's why I love the question about how do you identify? Yeah. Because we cannot make assumptions based on color of skin or neighborhoods that people live in. Not but all African-American. Sorry. Call out culture is culture, doing a heck right. of a lot of that right now. And that's also one of the challenges of when we talk about diversity and who's yeah. being represented. So here's where I want to go with the old white guy thing. Is that I have worked with many white, wealthy men in my career, and most of them are actually really good people who want to do good. And I do worry that when we talk, when we, we know that a lot of wealth in the United States and North America in particular has been created on the backs of slavery, and we know that reparations are due, and we know that we just need to start surfacing all of that. Um, I, I think that the intentions of a wealthy male businessman are 
oft, most, most times um, very positive and good. So I'd be interested in knowing, George, if you've had experience having these conversations with those folks and how has that gone for you? Uh, boy, Kimberly, you, know, right, you go right to the stinger there. Mm, I do. <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, the, my challenge as much, I mean, Paul, you were singing my song. Um, the, uh, you know, when you grow, in a, grow up in a majority culture like Seattle, um, where you're only seven, you only seven, there's only like less than 7% of my identity in Seattle. Um, you know, I grew up integrating my schools. Uh, first black experience from my teachers, first black experience from, from my, from my classmates. And when I went to Washington State University in Eastern Washington, same thing, uh, very, very few of us, um, in that realm. And so having to, con con to figure out how to conform to a playbook of success that didn't account for my lived experience, the way I talk. In fact, I, I am from Louisiana originally. You wouldn't know that. I'm actually Creole American, um, but you wouldn't know that because when we moved to Seattle suburbs, um, my vernacular wasn't accepted. And so I was forced into speech therapy to conform to expectations of what society uh, need me to be. Um, and much like Paul, uh, you know, it was, it's almost like they're waiting for me to fit into and perform a stereotype that they have had, they've used to, to uh, inform, inform their view. Mm -hmm. um, and so imagine that coming into a world of fundraising, when in my association, my professional association, which is CASE, um, Council for Advancement of Supportive Education, which is where all uh, universities belong to in their fundraising body, um, that, you know, our case district is uh, from Saskatchewan to uh, BC, um, Alaska, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Montana, being the only African-American at any university um, in those, or African descent from any of those universities. So walking into conferences where there are 500, 600 people and I'm the only one, um, that's a lot of weight. Yeah. So when, so when, who's asked to chair the diversity committee? Yep. I am, uh, you know, uh, carrying those weights, who's asked to solve everyone else's philanthropic problems around white supremacy? I am, um, as if they don't have experiences themselves. Uh, and so, uh, just being in a profession, um, that's isolating is, is, is critical, but it also depends on, you know, the management structure in front of me. Uh, are they going to empower me to speak truth to power? Are they going to allow me to say, this is not right in this environment? Mm -hmm. I, 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 uh, uh, and I, uh, you know, I called out one, one employer, but uh, this incident has happened in, in other um uh, employment situations where my presence is not, was not naturally accepted to be an advancement officer. My presence was to be an assumed employee of an establishment of at an event, such as being a waiter or uh, being valet. That's happened to me over and over again. Um, even if I'm wearing the university's colors, um, with the name tag, 
the expectation of, of my presence is of service um, and service to particularly white men, actually, we rarely have ever had a white woman make that assumption of me. But um, that's, that's what that's what issues of and the other side of the, the thing is, because my voice doesn't present um, non doesn't present non white, there's a lot of assumptions on the telephone. And so I've had some very racist incidents with donors who've made assumptions of my identity um, uh, that, uh, you know, that I have, to, I have to carry myself and figure out how do I navigate this? How do, how do, I, how do I navigate my values and my self-worth in this situation? Um, uh, and then let me also add to that People can get comfortable with the presence of diversity around them to the point where it's numbing to understand what it means to have that person next to you. I am a college graduate. I own my own home. I work, I, I make enough money that I can help my extended family when it's needed. I have a, I hold a lottery ticket in life that others don't that look like me. If one out of three African-American men in this country will have some kind of interaction with the justice system, that leaves just two of us. So imagine all that I have, the, all that I work for, that could be snatched up at any moment because someone doesn't like how I responded or someone, I'm not living up to the expectations that uh, are much higher than others. Um, that's all in my head. That's all I have to navigate every day. That requires us to con continuously overperform um, uh, to meet expectations that we've know we've been conditioned towards. Um, and that's that's those are challenging for a sector mm -hmm. um, in a number of different ways. Not just donors. Uh, I think management is an issue of that. None of them are scared to hire diverse diversity because they don't know how to manage diversity. Um, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of assumptions being made about who we are and, and, and what we offer. But let me tell you this, um, my lived experience will accelerate a mission because what you all use for your imagination, my lived experiences brings real tangible assets to those nuances that you don't understand that you can't translate, that no theory that you put in front of people could be activated because my lived experiencing experiences brings me to the, pro the proximity of those challenges that need to be addressed. The question is, do you value my social capital? Mm -hmm. Do you value my culture capital that I bring? Mm -hmm. Or are you gonna dismiss me as just an employee? or just someone on the other side of a philanthropic engagement. Those are all the things that, that I wrestle with when you ask a question like that. Thank you for um, sharing. Yeah, thank you. Um, why, do you. why do you keep doing it? It's just so heavy. That's a lot of work. Why, why do you keep showing up for this? Um, you know, I'm at an amazing university uh, called Pacific Lutheran University. It's in Tacoma, to south of Seattle. Um, and what drew me to this university is a mission 
that is about a civic purpose, about something greater than self. The mission is explicit around leading with inquiry, service, uh, leadership, and care for uh, people, communities, and this earth. There's a center of vocation at this university that is focused on students understanding what, what it means to have vocation in life. That is how I live my life. I have left job after job when my values are crossed because I will not be a product of something that, that I am not co-designing, uh, that, that does not center the community. Mm-hmm. Because when you don't center the community's voice, then you need to be challenged with what are you replicating that has already caused the inequities that are in our society. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are at this point now where accountability means a lot. And accountability is to those furthest from justice. That's where we're at in life. And I am so happy that I work at a university that respects that, that leads that to the point where we are attempting to become the first university in the country to move away from the traditional campaign model Mm. to a collective impact model that is fully community-centric philanthropy oriented. You just introduced a whole other topic. So I would say, Jay, I've heard you talk about fundraisers need to step up and assert their their power as opposed to just the capital raisers, talking about co-designing from a strategic perspective before. Mm -hmm. That's the beautiful power of philanthropy. I know you were throwing it to Jay. I just um, want to make sure that we hear George and the point that he made about the, the, the community-centered fundraising and embracing um, the principles there are a way for us to stop perpetuating harm in our communities. And that it's not a choice between, I, I mean, I don't see it as a choice between the tactics of donor-centered fundraising. I'm sure you've written a lot of thank you letters, George. Um, I just, I just think we need to be more aware and open to the idea that the social justice lens needs to be layered onto everything that we do with, with each other in our staff teams, but also as we look out into our community and have conversation with our donors and the idea of a collective impact model, as opposed to a capital campaign traditional structure is fascinating. And I want us all to have, uh, I want to take a a minute to just give us a taste of what that looks like. Um, And then we'll do some final thoughts. Does that sound all right? So can you tell us what a collective impact model looks like? Sure. So um, a collective impact model uh, essentially centers the community's voice in understanding what needs to be accomplished. It creates a common agenda um, uh, uh, among um, stakeholders um, in the community. So at the university, so at our university, um, we're, we're gonna come up with just like you would do in a traditional campaign, come up with our wish list. What are the things that we need to, to accomplish our mission? Um, 
Of course, that might look like faculty, scholarships, facilities, and things like that. Mm -hmm. The question though is, what's the civic purpose behind those? So looking at it from a lens of, not from the lens of what does our university need for ourselves, but what will, what will our community gain when these things are accomplished? Mm-hmm. That's, that drives how we form, formulate our agenda. Then we look at the market. What, does, what is our governor saying that, that, uh, that our governor, Jay Inslee, is going to invest in um, in our state to advance our state, our citizenship? Um, and so we'll take that into consideration. We'll hold community conversations around what their needs are. Um, in regards to everything from health and well-being um, to economic development and all those things that are critical in our community and our region. We'll look at secondary data. The information has already been produced and understand how to, how to take those things in. Um, and then, that, and then we'll, what we do is find partners that will help formulate an, a, a shared agenda with us that we then can then better understand how, how we can make achievement. So common agenda is one of those segments. Um, shared learning and measurement, understanding that our impact needs to be measured something higher than self. So, um, and that should be reflective um, measurements that are culturally appropriate, not just to some standard or practice that we're dictating by our academic academies or by um, other measurements that are not actually pertaining to the people that are being impacted and understand what progress means uh, defined from those communities. Then we're gonna look at, as a, as, a, as a partnering group, how do we lean into each other's greatest strengths? Because there are certain things that our university can do that uh, maybe a nonprofit and our partnership can't. Mm-hmm. So we can lean into those areas. Well, perhaps a funder is part of our collective mm-hmm. and they get to lean in um, to their strengths to help advance this, 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 uh, this, this grouping, this partnership. Then we're gonna th- talk about continu- continuous engagement um, and communicating, being transparent, checking in, holding town halls um, about accountability. Um, are we creating harm um, in what we do? And then, and then there's a backbone organization component to this, which means that we have certain assets and privilege that other partners may not have. So will we lead the philanthropic um, investments that are needed for this partnership? Perhaps so. Will we do the measuring because we have that capability? Perhaps so. And so that's, that's what a collective impact model can do. A quick example of that would be our dean of science might say, I need a new building. Um, and that's great that, that uh, we have all these innovative labs and things like that and so on. We could have a capital campaign around that. That would mean we're isolating resources to our university. Mm-hmm. That dean is then dictating how those resources are used for the benefit of students in their research and faculty research. And it kind of stops from there. I mean, you can you can do some imagination around long-term impact or what research can do. Or what you can do is say, great um, Dean of Science, that's your need. Well, you know what we heard from community? That there's, there's, a, there's not, a, there's not a, 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 an exploratorium for children in our community, in our region. Let's think about combining those two together. Mm-hmm. So then the first floor, there's this, this amazing science, science or STEM exploratorium mm-hmm. for, for children in our region. To come, to come learn. Perhaps there's um, uh, classrooms, labs for local school districts that don't, that don't have labs to perform with. Mm-hmm. That is what a collective can do. 
that allows us to better understand that there's a civic purpose for what we're doing that is greater than self. Mm-hmm. Where does the traditional feasibility study fit into that? Well, that that well that comes in from um, from the very beginning, and I think that's actually the joy of this is that when we do something like a collective, everybody gets invited at once. There is no um, you know you know uh, blind testing of donors. We're straight up front with the saying, "Hey, Gates Foundation, we're we're interested in exploring this with our community." We want you to come along on this journey with us. Yeah, so inviting them at the very beginning. Oh, that's so exciting. Of concept and design. And then the great thing about this, and this kind of goes back to Kimberly, what, what you were talking about earlier about, um, about how do we make sure that we're not creating harm, is that we're going to lead with the equity design theory, mm-hmm. understanding that those who will benefit need to be part of the initial conversation, the ideation. So we're not using our supreme power of ideation on others. And so we're going to bring that in together. We're going to ideate, we're going to define the challenge together that's going to be to be answered. And then we're going to test it out. And then we're going to go back and say, was there harm in what we just tested? Um, and then we're going to come back and measure what our success looks like to end failures and take that information back to the beginning of our, de- our design concept to, to iterate um, and improve for the next cohort coming in or for the next iteration of of um, a project that needs to to be can um, to be advanced. Wow! Wow! Are you in the future? Yeah. If someone had told me that this exists in an advancement model within a modern university, I would have said you're crazy. It, it's it really getting yeah. very hopeful yeah. to hear about this kind of methodology and thinking and action. Because I, you know, I really thought stuff like that is still years away because this is a completely 100-year-old, 200-year-old academic model in our continent. It's, it's happening within, uh, it's happening to a certain extent in my community around homelessness yeah. um, and social services. But the fact that it's in an academic institution is really um, mind-blowing. Jay, and, you were- you, grassroots. Yeah. Right? yeah. Jay, you yeah. were taking notes there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's too much to unpack because we could spend two more hours talking about that. Um, yeah. On the one hand, again, it, it strikes me as kind of like the earlier part of our conversation, which is that if any entity is going to do something, then it should first check itself and say, not only it does this do harm or not, because we should have a Hippocratic oath for fundraising and, and all the work we do, mm-hmm. but also... Uh, even though we clearly have not in the past, but I'm putting that aside. Um, but then we also should be checking ourselves because we don't always know what's best. As you said, ideation is, is the question here. Where's the genesis of any idea? I'm, I'm a believer in the idea that there are no original ideas. In fact, um, that uh, all ideas come from someplace else, just like all people uh, come from someplace else and have the roots and we're all tied together thousands and thousands of years ago from one place. And that's a discussion for another time. Um, but the thing that strikes me about the last part of what you said, George, is that if the, the in this particular example was, is the, uh, the dean in that person's infinite wisdom says, this is what I need, I need a building to do X, versus the community sees the need for an exploratorium. And I know you're just using one example, 
What I liked about that example is, okay, let's do something that brings this all together. So one floor does this, the other floor does that. But I can easily imagine a scenario in which if it's a school of public health and you have people who've been working on, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the roots of certain diseases and trying to project out where do we think the next diseases will arise, that no matter how we characterize that, it's not going to be very sexy for most people in the community who are trying to figure out how to eat tomorrow. And so on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm, I get very excited when I hear um, the, what you just described as a model for development, putting aside the tactical elements for a moment. But I, as I think more about it, I start to wonder, while I believe in my heart that the community always knows what's best for itself, whatever that community is, it may not always have the information at its disposal to know what's going to serve that community's children best. Because if that were true, we could have avoided the Black Plague and we probably could have avoided COVID. Um, so I don't think that, that any community is necessarily unwise, but I do think they're not always necessarily informed and future looking. So while there might be ignorance in the Dean's suite, there also will be a certain level of ignorance within any community. And so uh, I hope that what ties these ideas together is bringing people together and encouraging a little humility uh, among those who are, you know, hanging PhDs around their neck like, you know, chains that they can also listen to people who don't have that same background, but, but their lived experience is pretty vast and deep. And they know things that that person, that Dean is never gonna know, but I hope that the community too will do what we have failed at, for example, in the United States to do in this last year, which is to quiet the fears which lead us down dark paths mm -hmm. and to listen to people who have spent their lives studying things, which at least for myself, I don't understand. If we don't bring these people together, if we don't bring these ideas together, if we don't bring these strategies and tactics together, we are lost. Jay, can I just respond real quick to say that it's super powerful in what you just said. Um, uh, we believe that there is a backlash against elite knowledge. There's too many pundits in the world. And those, and that, that, the, the, the punditry is actually um, being politi politicized so well and so deeply that truth is really unknown. Um, and so we were to the point where we really believe this collective impact model is about feeling, touching, smelling truth together. Because when you walk together and you experience together, then you have shared knowledge and shared experience to say, is that what you see? Are we describing it the same way? Mm -hmm. It's a merging of elite and community knowledge together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that will actually help advance democracy. Because part of what we're looking at in as a university and moving to this collective model is what is our role of it to being a, what we call an anchoring institution for our community, for, for democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we need to walk side by side with each other. We can't be behind keyboards trying to solve things. Yep. We need to actually walk, walk side by side and be in community together break bread together yeah. uh, as the, like old Paul said that this is old grassroots that yeah. we're talking about 
right? This is not anything new. You can go back to the civil rights movement. You can go, this is movement building we're talking about now. This is like uh, getting people out of their political spheres and getting them into the street together to actually see that that uh, what you what you've been what from branded in your head about this individual actually has this environment that needs to be overcome first mm -hmm. for that individual to succeed. That no one is going to be successful on their own. This bootstrap mentality is a false narrative. The American dream is a collective dream. It's not an individual dream. We need to uh, we need to come to terms with that. Because that is what supremacy looks like. Supremacy looks like you're standing by yourself. You're ideating by yourself. You're using your imagination on others. That's what supremacy looks like. And that's uh, of us who've not, who've not been in the majority have always experienced. So when people talk about white privilege, you know, it's the privilege of having the benefit of the doubt. It's a privilege to use your imagination on others. That's, what that, that's what's happening that we're trying to overcome and all that's only gonna to come together when we connect on a deeper trusting level of work and, and, and engagement and civic responsibility that's shared by all. There's a good place to end up at. Whew. I think our list is gonna have a lot of thinking to do, but you've given, you both of you have given everybody a, a lot of great perspective on this yeah and again that, that collective that's wonderful stuff so here's here's what i heard you all say first of all i can't thank you enough we have been waiting for the perfect curated group for this conversation and we have it and um community-centered fundraising and donor-centered fundraising tactics do not need to be mutually exclusive there is still value reading and studying Penelope Burke's research. And that we need to layer a social justice lens on it. And, you know, Jay talked about traditional or heritage philanthropy. And then we moved into donor-centered fundraising because we were treating donors like an ATM machine. And now we're layering on the community to see how do we keep all the good stuff and banish practices that cause harm. And that we need to continue to show up um, and have intimate conversations like this where we can learn and grow together. And this problem will not be solved on Twitter. No problem. Crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so grateful to you all for what I hope will be the beginning of a conversation. And um and my heart is just swollen in gratitude. It really, I just can't thank you enough. Do you have any um, final thoughts before we wrap up? I, I just want to say, I appreciate uh, this gift of discussion and, and, um, and welcoming us to this platform, uh, Kimberly and Paul. Uh, the fact that you are um, putting yourselves out there um, to have these really um, courageous conversations uh, helps amplify the changes that we need in our field. Um, and people who look like me are going to find, because we always search, 
for things that make sense for us. And when you create new knowledge out in the community that does that, you're, you're actually um, affirming people's belief that this is the right place for them to be in. So I wanna thank the two of you for crafting um, a space for this. Um, Jay, I wanna thank you for your continued contributions to our field. You know, you're a legend um, in, a, in, a, and, um, in many different ways. Uh, but one of the things I love about you is that you're a lifelong learner and you clearly change and understand what change means. Um, and so I appreciate you continuing to, um, to motivate others to do the same. Thank you so much. It's just an honor being here and, and frankly hearing some of the things that you're discussing. I, I really appreciate you all for letting me sit in and be a part of the conversation. And um, it was, it was uh, heartening in a way, even though the, there was a lot of pain in what you shared, George, to hear um, the courage that you found to go to the places that would let you be George. <laughs> if, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in all the conversation today, but if somebody listens in for five minutes and hears you say just that, yeah, I know that whatever their circumstances and some people are not in a place where maybe they feel they can make the choices that you made, but maybe you weren't either, but you did it anyway. And that kind of courage always inspires me. And I hope it, in, I hope it finds a home in, in the breast of others too. Thank you. We just hope that we've helped folks who are in the middle of these arguments find a place in the middle where they can be in dialogue and we can all move forward together. Amen. I mean, I can't help it. Amen. Now is the time for our sector to come together and really dig into how we build unity, have collective impact, advance restorative philanthropy, and try to repair decades of harm. We can do that work with our donors and still provide them with excellent service. Thank you so much to Jay and Zeno for digging in, showing up, opening their hearts, being vulnerable, taking risks, and having this conversation with us. Our hope is that this is just the start and that the discussion continues to happen in multiple venues and with many, many people. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you, so be sure to join the Intersection community and subscribe, review, and share this podcast. See you next time.